I want to invite you to join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We're going to finish up this wonderful chapter on the resurrection together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I doubt that there's anyone here who would not benefit from a large, large dose of encouragement. Uh, The reality is you probably have more than enough on your plate right now and in your life to discourage you. I mean, if you just think about the various things that may be going on in your life, you may have a lot of things that come to mind. Uh, What you may be facing uh, may just be a variety of discouragements, and those could stem from all kinds of things. Those discouragements could stem from your home and what's going on there. Uh, Those discouragements could stem from your family, uh, something in your marriage perhaps, or in relationship to your children. Uh, They could come from your friendships. Uh, as well as your workplace and what that is like and what's happening perhaps in your career or something like that. Uh, You may be facing various health challenges and struggles. Uh, Your finances may be a a source of discouragement even as you watch uh, prices and inflation keep going going up and up and up and uh, your income stay the same. Maybe you look at your schedule and it's discouraging. Because it's jam-packed full of this and that and more than you could ever possibly seem to get to. Or maybe it's discouraging because actually how slow it is. Or maybe as you look at the future, you're discouraged about something or maybe you have discouragements in many of those realms. You get discouragements in very many of those places and it's just kind of hard to stay grounded and keep moving and have a proper perspective. Most of us need to be encouraged. And with that, we need to be strengthened and stabilized and perhaps pushed forward in our Christian walk. And this text does that very thing. In fact, the entire chapter does. And by the time it reaches its culmination in verse 58, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 has enabled us to be encouraged so that at the end, you get to verse 58, we might be, uh, to use the, the, the language of that verse, we might be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, living on the mission, fulfilling the great commission that God has given us. What if you were able to live your life in such a way that no matter what was going on, uh, good or bad, you were that steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The resurrection helps you to do that very thing. The resurrection aspect of the gospel is a great encouragement. I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 50 down through verse 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
This morning, we want to look at four encouragements that uh, God sets before us based on the resurrection. The first is God lays before us an absolute necessity. And whatever this necessity is, it's meant to encourage us. What is it? Well, it's that we must undergo bodily transformation. Look at verse 53. Uh, Skipping kind of down there into the middle of the passage, and then we'll end up back at the top in a moment. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Uh, This verse points to two realities about our current bodies. The first is that they are perishable or subject to decay and deterioration as we saw last week. And second, they're mortal, meaning that we die. And this verse says that it is necessary, it is an absolute must for our perishable current bodies to put on the imperishable and for our mortal bodies to become immortal. To put on immortality. That's an absolute necessity. Our natural bodies must be transformed into the types of bodies that we saw last week. Glorified bodies. Why? This is where I think the encouragement starts to come. Because we are not bodily fit for the nature of God's kingdom. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You think about a kingdom, and I think God's kingdom here is really uh, one of the things we're, we're supposed to take great encouragement from. In order to have a kingdom, you need to have a ruler. You need to have a king, right? And that king needs to have a realm. Psalm 103 verse 19 tells us about both of those. It says that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. He's the king. And his kingdom rules over all. Okay, so if we talk about a ruler in a realm, the ruler is the Lord. And his realm, what is it? It's everything. He rules over all. And part of our salvation involves inheriting that kingdom. However, our current bodies are ill-suited for it and the life to come. That's why we need to undergo bodily transformation. We are mortal and God's kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Our salvation is described as an eternal salvation, an eternal inheritance. And in order to fully experience both the eternal kingdom and our eternal salvation, we must put on immortality. And further, we are perishable and God's kingdom's imperishable. It's an imperishable kingdom and our salvation is an imperishable salvation. I prayed this morning uh, in reference 1 Peter chapter 1 that talks about our eternal inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And we're being kept for it, to receive it. Neither the kingdom nor your salvation are subject to decay or deterioration. And if you're going to experience both of those, you must put on the imperishable. The natural body cannot enter the eternal state. It's just too, too great. It's too glorious. And this current body will, will never work for that. I can think of a couple awesome domains or realms that I would enjoy exploring. You probably could think of a few yourself. Uh, space is one of them. Almost every kid grows up uh, wanting to be an astronaut. I would also probably enjoy exploring the deep sea. Wouldn't you love uh, if, if you could be right in the middle of all the grandeur of space? I mean, w- w- we stand here on earth and we look up at it and we marvel at it. But what if you could be up in it? 
and travel through it and experience it uh, firsthand. Wouldn't you love to see all the awesome creatures in the bottom of the ocean, assuming that they're not like trying to eat you? Like, what if you could just go explore the bottom of the ocean and, 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 and enjoy all of the creation and the ocean? That would be awesome to explore those realms, or maybe I could use this word, kingdoms. But your body's not suited for either of those realms. Space travel requires a suit. Uh, space is so awesome and incredible, but this body can't take you there. It won't survive there. Space travel requires a suit as well as deep sea diving. You need a suit and you need oxygen. Those realms require something that your body is not. But there's a far, far greater, grander, more glorious realm or kingdom than space or the ocean floor or the ocean world. It's the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ rules and reigns throughout all of eternity. And in Scripture, this kingdom is described as a holy kingdom, and it actually has a holy city. It's completely and totally without defilement. It's eternal. It's without sin, decay, or deterioration. And God is going to give you the suit, so to speak, to experience it and him in its fullness for all of eternity. You don't have that right now. But this kingdom, it's awesome, and it's incredible, and it's where God's people are going. It's what we're going to experience, God's kingdom. And so God lays before us an absolute necessity related to this coming kingdom. We must undergo bodily transformation because of the nature of God's kingdom. It's eternal and imperishable, and that should encourage you in the midst of what you see and experience now. Rot, sin, decay, Injustice, pain, sorrow, all of those things. A second encouragement that God lays before us, God lays before us a great mystery. Verse 51 begins this way. It says, behold. Whenever you see the word behold in scripture, it's just the idea of look. Look, I tell you a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is a hidden truth uh, that people would never work out on their own apart from God revealing it to you. And so in verses 51 and and 52, God reveals to us an incredible, an incredible two-part mystery. And again, it's, it's meant to encourage us. And we wouldn't know these things unless God told us about them. So part one of this mystery is this. Not all of us will die. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not all of us are going to die or sleep to use the language of this text. There will be an entire generation of Christians who do not die. A whole generation. Because Jesus Christ will return before that happens. I just want you to think for a moment. You know that that could actually be us. That that could be our generation. It could happen today or next week or in our lifetimes. Jesus Christ could return today. What an amazing, amazing thought that would be. That thought raises, uh, potentially though, a concerning question based on what God said in the previous paragraph or two. And we might be left scratching our heads as perhaps the Corinthians were wondering something like this. Well, you know, don't you actually like have to die? You know that thing about the seed? Don't you have to die like a seed to receive a, a glorified body? What if I'm not dead when Jesus comes? God clarifies that not all of us will die, part one, but part two of this mystery, all of us will be changed. 
Uh, look at verse 51 into, into 52. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Uh, he's talking about our bodies going through this transformation that verses 42 to 44 talked about that we saw last week. It described uh, the, what's perishable being transformed to imperishable, dishonorable to something glorious and beautiful. Our weak bodies being transformed into powerful, strong, healthy bodies. The natural body being transformed to the spiritual. And when God talks about this happening to all of us, he's referring specifically to Christians. Every Christian will receive a glorified body. And it doesn't matter uh, if at Christ's return, you're one of the ones who's already died, or whether you're one of the ones living at that time, you will receive a gloriously transformed body. And he tells us some details about this. That change will happen instantaneously. Verse 52 says that it will, we, we will experience this change in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, we get our English word that's translated uh, moment here. Uh, we, it actually, we get our English word atom. Sorry, we get our English word atom from the Greek word that's translated moment here. You think about an atom. Now we talk about subatomic part, particles, but that word originally just, it has the idea of something that, that can't be divided any further. It can't be cut up any smaller. And here it's referring to a unit of time. This will happen in a moment. The transformation from your mortal and perishable body to your immortal, imperishable one will happen in lightning speed. Faster than uh, this text says you can blink an eye or, or cast your eye from here to there. The change will happen instantaneously. And this change will happen, we're told, at Christ's return. Look at verse 52 again. It, it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verses sixteen to seventeen explain that when Christ returns, his return will be accompanied by the blast of a trumpet. I'm going to read First Thessalonians four, sixteen to eighteen for you. It says, For the Lord himself, and, and that's specifically a reference to Jesus. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so there's this trumpet blast and those who have died will rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In the Old Testament, uh, trumpets, trumpets were used to uh, summon people to action or sometimes used to summon God's people together to gather. Jesus Christ will descend from heaven and will summon his people from their graves. And we will be raised imperishable and we will be forever transformed to live forever in the presence of the Lord. That's an awesome thought. We live right by two uncontrolled railroad crossings. and The train crosses the road right where our driveway's at, basically. Meaning that uh, every time the train comes by, since it's an uncontrolled crossing, it has to blast its horn multiple times, I think five times or something at each crossing. And I'll never forget our first night in our home, uh, falling asleep, sound asleep, and about 2 a.m., 2 that train just comes thundering through, just roaring. 
horn blasting, our house is shaking, you know, the headboard is vibrating. I'm wide awake, nearly had a heart attack, and thought, whoa, like the train is here. And now, I mean, it probably went by five times last night, and I have no idea. We've lived at our house uh, five years. But that first night, it was like, whoa. Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven in roaring fashion. And when he does so, he's going to summon the dead to life, and he will summon all of his people to meet him, to gather in the air. And in that moment, we'll be standing in our glorified bodies, and we will have never been more awake or more alive. And we will say, whoa, the king has come. He's here. And scriptures teach he's coming. And that could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen decades from now. We don't know when he's coming, but he's promised. He's coming. God lays before us a great mystery. And even though not all of us will die, all of us will be changed in the presence of the Lord. And that should encourage us. What great hope. We have a third encouragement. God lays before us a complete victory. Look with me at verse 54. It says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 25, verse 8. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's an awesome, awesome verse. That is the language, not of partial, but of complete and total victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death will be completely annihilated once and for all. And again, God's going to give us several details about this. Uh, Note the timing of this victory in verse 54. uh, we're, We're clued in that it's when Christ returns and transforms us. That's when death is swallowed up in victory. Right now, you think about death, there's a sense in in which death is still very, very much a difficult reality and an enemy. But it won't be. I mean, some of you, you, you've had friends and loved ones who you deeply, deeply cared about, and and they've already died. And even if if they knew Christ as their Savior, that was still a difficult, painful parting. Death is still very much a a difficult reality, an enemy, but it won't be. Notice well that the taunt in this victory. Look at verse 55. Paul continues, the Spirit of God continues, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? That's a taunt. The Spirit of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul is taunting death. A victory taunt. What's remarkable, at least to me, is that the Spirit of God is pulling the words of this particular taunt. He's pulling them from a fascinating Old Testament passage. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter 13. And we'll look in a moment here at verses 12 to 14. This passage that I've asked you to turn to in the Old Testament book of Hosea is about Israel and Israel's sin. And God's unwillingness to tolerate it. Look with me at Hosea chapter 13. Uh, We'll look at verses 12 and 13 to start. Verse 12 of Hosea chapter 13 says this. It says, the iniquity of Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? That's another name for Israel. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. 
His sin is kept in store. So Israel has all this sin and it's like it's compounding and and piling up and bound together. And then verse 13, uh, Israel's going to be described as a child that, that won't come forth. Verse 13, the pangs of childbirth come for him, but he's an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. This child just won't be born. God is highlighting, what God is doing there, he's highlighting Israel's sin and rebellion and obstinacy and rejection of God. And then in verse 14, God poses the question of what he should do in response to Israel and Israel's sin. Look at verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Sheol's the grave. Shall I redeem them from death? Should God spare Israel from the power of the grave? Should he redeem them from death? How does God respond? Look at the very end of verse 14. God says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. No. God's saying, I will not tolerate sin. I will not do that. And what does God do? I skipped over two phrases there in verse 14. After posing these questions of, of if he should redeem them from death and ransom them from the power of Sheol, he says there in the middle of the verse, he says, Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, oh, Sheol, where is your sting? What's he doing? He's crying out and he's summoning death and the grave. He's summoning the great enemy death on Israel like a hound upon prey. Oh, death, where are you? Come here and bring your plagues. Sheol, the grave, where? come here and bring your sting. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. I will not tolerate the sin of this people. And so he summons death and the grave to action. Why? Well, in a single word, and we find it back up in verse 12, the answer is this, it's sin. God's not a pushover. He's just, and he says, I will not tolerate sin, period. In fact, the New Testament tells us that the wages of sin is what? It's death. And that's exactly what we see there in the book of Hosea. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. What's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Spirit of God is now taunting death with the same exact words that he used to summon death in the book of Hosea. Why the change? Well, maybe it would help to note now the enemy in this victory that we're talking about. The enemy that we're speaking of is obviously death in 1 Corinthians 15. And it, we read that it has a sting like you might think of of a, a wasp or a hornet or a scorpion or a thorn or a thistle. It has a bite. It has teeth like a tiger. Verse 56 says that the sting of death is sin. Uh, that language of the sting of death, the sting of death means the sting that leads to death. And we know that it's, it's sin that does that. That's what this text says. Sin is the venomous sting that leads to eternal death and hell and destruction. If we weren't sinners, there would be no death. There would be no sting that led to death. But we are sinners. We're sinners and so we die. And verse 56 continues, 
And the power of sin is the law. God has a law. God has a standard. And all of us are accountable to that law and to that standard. And it stands before us like a great mirror. And it condemns us as lawbreakers. You think about what the law does. The law defines sin. And the law condemns the sinner. And ultimately, the law sentences us to death. One writer said, Indeed, by setting before us the standard that we ought to reach and never do, the law becomes sin's stronghold. Remember, the power of sin is the law. It makes sinners of us all. It condemns us all. And as another person put it this way, the law legalizes our dying. It makes it entirely right that we should die. I want to ask you a couple of big questions at this point in the text. According to this passage, what is it that gives uh, death its power? What gives death its life and its breath and its vitality, so to speak? Can we answer that question? I would think of it this way. Death has two lungs. What are they? He's just told us in this passage, sin and the law. Another question. In order for death to be defeated and even laughed at or taunted as it is here, what would have to happen? Well, to use that analogy of of lungs, both lungs would need to be punctured. Both lungs would need to be destroyed. Sin and the law must both be dealt with. Most hunters wait to take their shot until the animal that they are hunting has turned broadside in front of them. And then they set their aim just behind the front shoulder at the lungs. And then with the uh, crack of the rifle, a bullet rips through both of those lungs instantaneously, dropping the animal to the ground, often very, very quickly. Death is described as a vicious plague of an animal with a sting, with a bite. And according to this text, not only has death lost its sting, but both of its lungs have been shot through and obliterated. And death is now taking its final staggering steps and will soon be no more. It will breathe its last. When Christ returns, death will be dead. That's awesome. And we want to note the source of this great victory. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the source of this victory over death? It's God the Father. And he's done his work through none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's think about those two things again. Death and the law. The two things, or sin and the law, the two things that give death life. And think about both of those things in relation to Jesus Christ. Think about the law. In his life and in his death, Jesus Christ perfectly lived and fulfilled the law and met God's standard perfectly. Jesus Christ dealt with the law and all of its legal demands. He's perfectly righteous. He's entirely without sin. He's done everything right. He's dealt with the law. And he's also dealt with sin. 
Through his death on the cross, Jesus took your sin and its consequences. He paid the price for your sin and for my sin in full. And he took all of God's wrath for your sin and for mine on the cross. On the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus for your sin and for my sin. He paid for it in full. Jesus Christ sucked the very life out of death. And his resurrection is the proof. Jesus Christ dealt with sin and the law. But don't fail to note the recipients of this victory. Look at verse 57 again. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory over sin, over death, over the law, over the grave. Through what Jesus Christ did for us. We are undeserving recipients of that. God gives us the free, undeserved, unworked for gift of eternal life. And how should we respond? Well, just like this text says, thanks be to God. Death doesn't win. We win. God says he hands us the victory. We call that grace. The gospel is grace, not works, from first to last. God achieved this great victory through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives it to us. We didn't achieve it. We didn't do this. God lays before us a complete victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. I just want to take a moment here to say, to everyone sitting here, that God, even today, is holding out in front of you a great, great, enormous gift. And it's the gift of eternal life. It's victory over death and the grave. And what's behind that sin and the law. Maybe I could just ask you a very simple question. This great gift that God is handing you, this gift of eternal life, is that a gift that you have received or taken? How do you receive it? How do you take it? Well, one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture explains this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. God loves all the people of the world so much that he gave his only son. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. He gave his only son. How so? To die on the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. People will either perish and face death and eternal destruction or they will have eternal life even after their physical bodies die. And the difference between those two destinies is believing in Jesus, putting your trust in the saving work of Jesus on your behalf and what he did for you on the cross. And Jesus said uh, to all of us, he said, repent and believe the gospel, which means good news. What does that look like? It means this whole idea of repentance is this acknowledgement that I'm a sinner. And confessing that to God. God, I I deserve your wrath. I deserve to perish. I deserve eternal destruction. I deserve death. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. That's this whole idea of repentance. But Jesus said repent and believe. And believe there means trust. 
Trust that Jesus Christ dealt with the law. And trust that Jesus Christ dealt with your sin. And he paid for it in full on the cross. People who have eternal life are people who recognize that they're sinners and they say, God, I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? But I, I believe in Jesus. I trust that what he did can save me. And maybe for some of you today, you, you don't know if you have eternal life or if, if, if you face eternal death. Maybe you've never asked God to save you of your sins. And I would just encourage you, that's something that you can do right now, today. That you could just say, God, I am a sinner. I do deserve eternal death. God, would you, would you save me? Would you give me this great victory through the work of Christ? And God will. He will hand you eternal life. Fourth and final encouragement that God lays before us. He lays before us an unshakable life. Because of the resurrection, you and I can have lives that are stable, grounded, fruitful, even in the midst of chaos and instability. That's where we started, right? Let's be honest for a moment. Life can be a bit of a struggle. Uh, We can really flounder our way through it. Why did COVID shake so many of us up and unsettle so many of us as it did for, for months on end? Life's not always easy, is it? Uh, we wrestle with all kinds of things. Things like anxiety and depression, fear, uh, loneliness, things like anger and other types of things within us uncertainty, fatigue, and weariness. I mean, just so many other things. And God says at the end of this text that you can live an unshakable life. Look at verse 58. The verse starts with therefore. What he's about to say here, he's building off of of what came before it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, the language of endearment and affection, he's speaking to his friends. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You can live a life that's not tossed by the waves of the sea, but anchored. And you can live a life that's not fruitless and aimless, but a life that's extremely fruitful in God's work. And God is saying all of this, kind of this simple conclusion, uh, these simple statements, he's saying all of this as, as one of the grand practical applications of the doctrine of the certainty of the resurrection. Just, I mean, cast your eyes over this chapter. 58 verses in this chapter on the resurrection. 58. That's a huge chapter. It's taken me forever just to preach through it. I think four sermons or something through 1 Corinthians 15. 58 verses in this chapter on the resurrection, and this is how it ends. 57 verses backing up a single verse. You can live an unshakable life because you have a wonderful promise. Verse 58 continues, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Earlier in this chapter, Paul asserted that if Christ had not been raised then all of our gospel labors and all of our gospel sacrifices would be what? Vain. And Paul now concludes, they're not. They're not vain. Because Jesus Christ is alive. And so what do we do? We, we strive, even in the midst of all the chaos and, and tumult and instability in the world around us, we strive to live a life that's on mission. Sharing the good news, sharing the gospel with other people. And what happens? What happens? 
Well, God, in, in his own miraculous way, in his own timing, brings people from death to life to experience all that this chapter is talking about. God put before us here, or God put us here for a purpose. And that purpose is worth it. And there's a reward. And I would ask you, kind of as we wrap up here this morning, are you standing on something solid? You're going you're gonna to stand on something as you go through life. You're going to anchor your life to something. Are you wavering, movable, perhaps not really doing much of anything in the work of the Lord? This text tells us that the gospel is our footing. Uh, the desk that I sit at at home has two big legs, one on either side. And if you remove either one of those legs, the desk obviously will fall. It has no stability at that point. And it cannot hold any weight without both legs. It needs both. According to the first few verses of this chapter, verses 3 and 4, the gospel stands on two big legs. What are they? Christ died and he rose again. And I think what happens for most of us as Christians is we build uh, most of our Christian lives on that first leg. Christ died and he paid for my sin. But we often forget about the other one. That Jesus Christ is alive and that he rose again and there's this great future before us that impacts the present. Both of those legs, his death and resurrection are essential. And you and I want to stand and build our lives on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When life gets hard and it gets difficult now, we remember that Jesus Christ is alive. And we have a life that's not temporary but eternal and that will manifest itself one day in glorified bodies forever in the presence of God and his kingdom. Those are truths that we need to anchor our lives to. And when we do, we find great, great encouragement. God lays before us an unshakable life. Because of God's promises, you can have a life that you would not otherwise have or be able to live. And the people all around you, they don't have it. The people you work with, uh, family and friends and coworkers who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't have that stability. And they need it. And God wants us to share the good news with them. But we have it. And we want to live it. The resurrection aspect of the gospel is a great, great encouragement. And I hope you'll take heart by these wonderful truths. Uh, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this point? You take the next few moments here in your seat to respond to the Lord and what he has said and what he has spoken in his word. Uh, you pray to him however he might be leading you at this time. Uh, maybe you're one of those people uh, that I spoke of and you don't know if you have eternal life. You don't know if you've ever received God's gift and, of salvation and victory over death and sin and the grave. And maybe you just want to take these moments and cry out and repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. God, I'm a sinner. Would you give me this gift? Save me. I believe that Jesus Christ has done what is needed to be done, and I believe. You pray however God may be leading you at this time.
Thank you that we can pause for a moment after looking at a text like this, pause to praise you. And there are some wonderful things that we want to praise you for. We praise you that you are the king. And you rule, as we saw in the Psalms, you rule over all. You are the ruler and your realm is everything. And your rule, is, it's an eternal rule and, and the laws of your kingdom are wonderful laws. And you're such a great king. And we praise and thank you for that and thank you as well that what awaits us is eternity living in your kingdom where there is no sin, there is no injustice, there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there aren't any tears. You are a great king, and we just want to praise you for it. We also praise you that you are victor. You are a king who has conquered death and the grave through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that the law and all of its demands have been perfectly satisfied in Jesus Christ. They, they've all been completely fulfilled. Something that we could never do on our own. We could never do that. The law to us is a heavy burden, too, too heavy for us to bear. It's crushing. And yet Christ has perfectly fulfilled it. And we thank you as well that Christ paid for our sin on the cross. Our sin condemns us. Between our sin and, and your law, it is very clear that we are worthy of eternal death. And yet we're so grateful. We praise you that Jesus Christ has taken all the full weight of, of your wrath over our sin and he's dealt with it and he's paid for our sin and satisfied your wrath. There, there's no more payment to be paid. There's no more wrath to take. Thank you. We praise you that you are victor. And we also praise you that you are a God who gives beyond measure. You give in ways that we can't even begin to quantify that you would give us your son to pay for our sin and satisfy the law on our behalf and then give to us victory over death, that you would give to us eternal life as a free gift that we don't have to work for or attain because we never could. God, we, we cannot fathom the greatness of, of, of your hand that gives we can't even fully comprehend it. But we do want to praise you. And we do want to say thank you. And uh, we praise you as well that all that you have done transforms our life today and puts us in a spot that we can live a, a firm, stable life, even in the midst of all the chaos. You've changed our destiny, but you've also changed our present. And we pray that these wonderful resurrection realities would would truly change what our day-to-day -day looks like. That the worries and anxieties that we face and the fears that we face and the sorrows of this earthly existence and the weight of the curse and uh, just our experience of daily life, that it would be changed. 
by the wonderful reality of the gospel. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. We uh, give you praise and we ask for your blessing here uh, on the remainder of our time together this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can look this way. We're going to... Uh,